0: Last week, at the end of Acts chapter 6, Stephen had been seized. He'd been brought before the Sanhedrin. There were false witnesses who accused him of opposing both the temple and the Torah. Those were the two issues. They're still the two issues today. At the end of the text, last week, we left him before his accusers. With his face, we're told, shining... Like the face of an angel. Like those fiery members of the heavenly temple. Shining like Moses' face shone when he came down off of Sinai with the two new tablets of the law in his hand. Right? Here's the irony. Stephen had the radiance of Torah and temple while being accused of attacking Torah and temple. And So today we'll look at his defense It's a defense which will end, a speech which will end in his martyrdom. Though we won't get to the actual stoning of Stephen today. So this text from Acts chapter 7 is the longest speech in the book of Acts. And it's a book full of speeches. About 30% of Acts is speeches or public sermons. This is the longest one, so its its importance is indicated thereby. Um, Now in the interest of time, we read only the last half of it. But I'm going to comment, uh, Lord willing, on the, whole, on the whole speech, the earlier portion. Uh, so we're going to make two points. Jesus and the temple, they're there, they're there on your outline. And Jesus and Moses. So first, Jesus and the temple. So the high priest, this is Acts chapter 8, verse 1. The high priest asked Stephen, are these things so? That is, are the charges against you true? And Stephen begins not with no, or even with a a brief refutation of the charges. He begins like this. Brothers and fathers, it's a term of affection, right? Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Now, they must be thinking, that's where you're going to start? (laughs) We're going to do that? Sometimes... To defend yourself, right, to make a conviction intelligible, you need to go back. Sometimes you need to go way back, and you have to recount the biblical narrative. That's part of what Stephen's saying here is, look, these convictions we have about the Messiah, they're not just dangling in midair. They didn't just drop down from heaven. They have long, deep historical roots. And if we're going to make them intelligent to you, we're going to have to go back to the beginning, or at least back to Abraham. Because our beliefs are not like marbles bouncing around in our head, right? They're like spider webs. They're all nested and they're all knit together with other beliefs. And a debate like the one that's going on here, like between Stephen and the Sanhedrin, it's not just about one or two things, is it? It's often about a dozen other things under under and around the surface issue. Right? We see this all the time in controversies (laughs) Right? You might have a disagreement with someone, and you realize, oh, I just talked to them. There's seven other things that we see a little differently, and that's why they see this differently. So, back to Abraham. Back to Abraham. It seems like an innocent enough beginning. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. But it's not as bland as it might seem. Because the God of glory evokes the temple. And the temple's at the heart of the dispute. Right, the glory that dwelt in the temple was an earthly replica, an earthly accommodation of the heavenly glory of God. Right, The glory with which Stephen's face is already glowing. A glory which he has quite apart from the earthly temple. So this is a loaded beginning. Then he goes on to say God made himself known right, to Abraham. And you'll notice this outside the Holy Land and you know, outside the realm of the temple while he was still in Mesopotamia. God has never been tied to a place. And Stephen's going to do like a bit of you know, what you might call theological geography in this speech. Right? And eventually, of course, Stephen's ministry and his martyrdom are going to be a catalyst to, to bring the gospel out to the Gentiles, out to the ends of the earth. So the point here... Is God acts freely when He wills, where He wills, even with Abraham, our father, who was called into the land but received no inheritance in it. So the God of glory appeared, spoke, planted Abraham, promised to judge the nation that would enslave Abraham's descendants, gave the covenant of circumcision, which predates the Temple and the Torah. It's all quite subtle. And understated at this point, if you're reading the speech, it reads like a pretty generic kind of selective history of Israel. And next in the speech, Stephen jumps to Joseph, whom he says, the patriarchs in jealousy sold into Egypt. The Joseph story is, among other things, a story of evil patriarchs seeking to rid themselves of a troublemaker who was in fact their God-appointed deliverer. In other words, you are doing to Jesus what our fathers did to Joseph, who was a type of Christ. From the time of the patriarchs, you have been condemning the ones appointed by God to save you. They sold him into Egypt, but God was with him there, the text says. Whether it's Mesopotamia or whether it's Egypt, the God of glory does what he likes what he wills, what he pleases, in any place he decides. Now, Stephen's not making this all explicit, but it's lying right there. He narrates and he says, Jacob and the fathers all died, and they were carried back and buried in the land. This indicates that the land promise is a type of the coming resurrection, right? Right? The fathers want their bones buried in the land. The holiness of the land and the temple, it's not an end in itself. It points to the resurrection. And after Joseph comes this long section in the speech, we heard some of it read, on Moses. Remember, Stephen's being accused of opposing Moses. So he tells you a little bit of the story of Moses, with which I hope we're all familiar. He strikes and kills an Egyptian... He flees into exile, into another land in the spiritual geography of God's works, the land of Midian. And after 40 years, God eventually appears to him in the wilderness there, in the flame of fire, in the burning bush. And the Lord says to him, take off your sandals, for the ground on which you're standing is holy ground. What's the importance of this in the speech? Well, it means there's holy ground outside the temple. This is the great I Am. Wherever He is, there is the Holy of Holies. He led them out through the sea into the wilderness. Another place where He was present and at work. But, Stephen says, they rejected Him. They made a golden calf. They sacrificed to the idol. Now the point seems to have a little more bite. Our fathers, he says... And by implication, you guys, the Sanhedrin and the crowd assembled here, have been worshiping idols long before there even was a temple. From the earliest days of the Exodus. And then he jumps forward a few centuries. This is verse 42, if you're following. He jumps forward. It says that God turned away and gave them over to the host of heaven. And then he cites, of all things, in the middle of this speech, Amos chapter 5, which was Cited in the uh, New Testament reading, and it was our Old Testament lesson. You have perhaps, he says to Israel, you've brought me sacrifices, but that's useless, giving your perpetual worship of pagan gods. So from the wilderness down to the exile, that's 500 years or so, and strongly suggested all the way down to today, you have worshipped idols. That's the purpose of the history. There was a tent of witness, he says, the tabernacle, which our fathers had in the wilderness. Moses made it, and Stephen says this. Listen. He made it according to the pattern he was see, shown in the mount. Again, the heavenly sanctuary precedes not only the temple, but the tabernacle. There's a pattern. There's a heavenly sanctuary or a temple before there ever was an earthly one. They brought the tabernacle in the land. They had it there until the days of David. And now here in the latter part of the speech, the temple itself comes into view. He talks about David looking to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But Solomon builds a house. And this brings us to verse 48. He says this. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. So, this phrase, made by hands, by the way, in every single occurrence in the Greek Old Testament, refers to idols. So, Stephen is subtly suggesting that the temple itself has now become an idol. I mean, think about that. The God ordained place of worship, the dwelling place of the Most High God, you've managed to turn it into an idol. We have the land, we have the covenant with Abraham, and we have the temple. And somehow that makes us immune to judgment. It, it means we're safe. And this is an attitude, right? That Jeremiah, the prophet, attacked in Israel, right? When Jeremiah called the nation to repentance, he famously said, Do not trust in these deceptive words, Jeremiah said. You remember what those words are? This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah wants nothing to do with that. And John the Baptist said, do not say to me, right, we are the sons of Abraham. God can raise up sons of Abraham out of these stones. It's precisely their two greatest privileges and blessings. Their descent from Abraham and the possession of the temple, which have become means of corruption. So at the very, very least, Stephen is saying God can't be restricted to or limited to the temple. The God of glory dwells in the heaven temple and has been moving around geographically for centuries. That's one of the big points of this speech. And then, to to reinforce it, he cites Isaiah 66. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. And then listen to this. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Again, again, heaven relativizes earth. Heaven is God's throne. He neither needs, nor can he be confined to the temple. And even though God commanded and blessed the building of the temple, there's almost contempt here. Here's God saying to the prophet, to his people, what kind of house will you build for me? Like, I need your houses? Did not my hand make all these things? He is the creator, he says, utterly unique and other, infinite and transcendent, and even the architectural structures which he ordained and in which he inhabits with his Shekinah glory are puny and superfluous. This is really shocking language. The temple is relativized in this speech as it has been throughout the book of Acts to this point. What is important about the temple is what the temple points us to, what it's a type of. And we saw last week, it's a type of the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, and his body, you, bound together with him in communion through the Spirit. God is building a heavenly, eschatological, Spirit-filled temple, and you are it. And this, by the way, is what the prophets foresaw. The spirit, which in verse 51 says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the spirit. This is the language the prophets used against Israel, and Stephen is now in prophet mode. Five minutes ago, he was a proto-deacon serving tables. Right Now he's a prophet witnessing against the nation. And if he didn't Spell everything out explicitly to this point. If you read this speech by the end, he gets very pointed. He becomes ferociously provocative. What's going on at the end of this speech is the accused has become the accuser. Right? When, you, when you point to the Sanhedrin and to the crowd and you call them uncircumcised in heart, you are calling them pagans. And uncircumc- You're saying you're outside the covenant. That's what you're saying. And when you say they're uncircumcised in ears, you mean they're deaf to the word of God. Deaf deaf to the truth, deaf to the spirit. And he says, not only do they resist, he says, you all, you're always resisting the spirit. Refusing to become the spirit-filled temple. So who is speaking against the holy temple now, Stephen is asking. You guys are the defenders of the temple. You know, the, the Jews' temple centered piety is both too new, it's too new, it's too novel, it forgets to go back to the heavenly archetype. And it's too old, it doesn't move forward to the eschatological temple of the church in the spirit. It's too new and it's too old, right? It's fixated at the, at the midpoint of Israel in the story, where the biblical story neither starts nor ends. The biblical story starts in heaven with the triune God and ends in heaven in the new creation with the triune God. And they're fixated at this middle point. And we can all fall into this, right? Where we're fixated on something in the middle, not something that's the archetype or the end. So we'll look at the rest of the accusation under the second point, which is Moses and Jesus. So when This is the second point. So Stephen retells the story of Moses striking down the Egyptian. And he says this. Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they didn't. They said, who made you to be a ruler and a judge over us? Stephen says, this was the one God sent as a ruler and a redeemer. So again, you have another rejected deliverer. Joseph was a rejected deliverer. Moses was a rejected redeemer. Right? And again, Stephen's implying, not so subtly at this point, that the current Jewish leadership are rejecting the one of whom Moses spoke. It's almost as if he's saying, listen, you have become the, the murderers of the Christ, but it's pretty predictable given the history that I'm narrating now. So this becomes clear in verse 37 where Stephen says this. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Now that's from Deuteronomy 18. Peter's already cited it in chapter 3, which means the Sanhedrin's already heard him cite it. Here's what he said there. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who doesn't listen to that prophet shall be destroyed or cut off from the people. That prophet, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the claim Stephen's making here. That's what the apostles are proclaiming. And that prophet who speaks the word of God, right? He's the one whose voice is currently addressing the council and the crowd through Stephen. He's the one who calls Israel, through the apostolic preaching, to repentance. And it's that one who will, now notice the warning, right, who will cut them off if they refuse to listen. So again, imagine Stephen thinking, so who's speaking against Moses and the law now? Who's speaking against the temple and who's speaking against Moses and the law? So he concludes the speech, right? He says, This Moses is the one who, through the ministry of angels, received the law on Mount Sinai. But our fathers refused to obey him. They thrust him aside. So it's this dispute about the law, right? And Stephen says, look, from the beginning, the lawgiver Moses and the Torah, the law he received, have both been thrust aside, they've both been rejected. And thus Israel sent into exile into Babylon. Why, why is Israel sent into exile? Corrupting the temple worship and breaking the Torah. The two issues in dispute. So to the conclusion of the speech, I already mentioned that the accuser becomes the accused. I want to look at these final words again. Just a, I didn't get all of them on the first point. So he says, you stiff-necked people. Right, that's just a kind of perpetual hardness and rebellion. If you're stiff-necked, you can't turn around. You can't, you can't hear properly. You don't see everything right. They're stiff-necked. It's, it's a, that, of course, is an image used repeatedly by the prophets about Israel. It's not novel to Stephen. Stephen's just standing in the line of the prophets the way Jesus did. He calls them uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist your, the Holy Spirit. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And then he says this. Now, notice... This is really biting, and it's a kind of a watershed mark in the apostolic preaching. As your fathers did, so do you. Here's the key thing to get. Up to this point in the speech, it's been our fathers. Now when he drives the point home, it's your fathers. Like Stephen's saying, I stand with the faithful remnant in Israel. You stand with the disobedient historical uh, you know, majority in Israel. They are your fathers. So there's a breach here among Israelites. Those who embrace the Messiah and those don't, who don't. So as did your... you know. Then he says, which of the prophets... This, he ends the speech with this biting rhetorical question. Um, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Like this would be a shorter list than the ones that they did persecute. And remember, right, the prophets are God's prosecuting attorneys. They bring what is called a covenant lawsuit against Israel. Why? For corrupting the public worship of God and for violating the Torah. And if you're persecuting the prophets and you have a history of persecuting the prophets, which you do, including the prophet like Moses, namely Jesus, then you cannot be the keepers and the lovers of the Torah. And that's all subtext here. I mean, Stephen doesn't say that, but that's what he's saying. So again, who's defending the Torah now? He's just channeling Jesus, who said this to his Jewish opponents. And this was from our gospel lesson. So listen again to what Jesus said. He said, you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. You know, in Matthew's version of this, Jesus inserts here that, you know, basically they proudly congratulate themselves that if they had been alive back then, they wouldn't have been among those who killed the prophets. If we were there, we wouldn't have killed the prophets. So we just build nice little tombs for the prophets and put flowers on them, and we celebrate the prophets. And Jesus considers this repugnant. They killed the prophets, you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world might be charged against this generation. So now you start to see, right, this is the kind of speech that's going to get you killed. Or certainly it could. So back to Stephen. Which of the fathers, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Not many. And he goes on, he says this, they killed those who announced the coming of the righteous one. It's a beautiful title for Jesus, by the way, the Righteous One. It's not often used in the New Testament, but it means he alone is the one who kept the law. He alone is the one who walked in the Spirit in communion with his Father, and he alone makes you righteous. The Righteous One makes us righteous. They killed those who announced the coming of the Righteous One, the Righteous One whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You killed those who announced the Christ. You've now killed the Christ. And then he concludes the speech. For you are the ones who received the law delivered by angels. And here's the last five words of the speech before the stones begin to fly, which, Lord willing, we'll look at next week. <clears throat> you received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. What good is it to be the defenders of the Torah, right? To, to, to fight for the Torah's honor at every point. To feel like Jesus and his apostles are threatening the customs of Moses. You got the law, sure, but you never kept it. You're worried about me? You're worried about what Jesus taught about the Torah? When you have a millennia long history of not keeping the law, you allegedly revere? Who's speaking against Moses now? So, what turns out, what starts out to be kind of a, you know, it looks like a kind of ordinary rehearsal of Israel's history. By the end, it's a prosecution. And Stephen has sealed his doom here. He becomes the precursor, by the way, of Christian apologists against unbelieving Judaism. And remember, he's a Hellenistic Jew, so he's kind of a bridge from Jerusalem out into the Hellenistic world where the gospel's about to go. That world out there where the God of glory, whose throne is in heaven, works when and where he wills. The God whose presence creates a holy of holies wherever he appears. Which is, of course, makes the church a holy sanctuary, the dwelling place of Yahweh. This God, the one who Stephen proclaims, has tabernacled among us in Jesus Christ. And what does John say? We beheld his glory. We saw the God of glory in Jesus Christ. He is the seed of Abraham. Jesus is. He is the greater Joseph. He is the prophet like Moses whose voice we must heed. He alone fulfills the law. He builds this everlasting Davidic house. He's the cornerstone of the new heavenly temple. He's the once for all sacrifice. He's the one who holds a perpetual Melchizedekian priesthood. In him, all the promises of God are yea and amen. If you believed Moses, Jesus said, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. Now, Jesus doesn't say, look, if you squint really hard, you might be able to find some Christian gospel in the Old Testament. He said, no, 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 he wrote about me. Christ crucified and raised is the subject matter of the Old Testament. Yes, under types and shadows and prophecies and promises, and certain institutions, to be sure. But nevertheless, what is being written about is Jesus. The Old Testament, beloved, is Christian scripture. Not just a prelude to Christian scripture. It's Christian scripture because Moses wrote of Christ. John chapter 5. And you'll remember that after the resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, Luke speaks of Jesus beginning with Moses, and with all the prophets, interpreting in the scriptures the things concerning himself. So again, what Stephen has done here, he's just imitating the Master in giving us a Christ-centered reading of the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament. Imagine if I said, you have to do your devotions, your personal Bible reading for the next 30 days, or some, some limited time, right, without the New Testament. This is, that's what the early church did for decades, because the Old Testament preaches Jesus Christ. And you can find him there and see him there and, and have him minister to you there. It's a Christ-centered reading. Again, it's not just Christ appears at the end. Christ is present from the beginning. So he, this, Stephen is imitating what Jesus did. Jesus began with Moses and all the prophets and explicated himself. Stephen just did the same thing. And now he's going to imitate the master in a martyr's death. So there's a couple things we can learn here. First of all, learn how to read the Bible. We need to know this history. We need to be able to narrate the acts of God because our convictions are rooted in the whole story. Right? So Stephen is defending himself against some charges and he says, look, I'm going to need a couple of minutes. We're going to have to go back to Abraham. We need to know this history. It's our history in Jesus Christ, in the Messiah of Israel. So that's very, I think, important. The second thing we need to learn here is we have to flee to the righteous one. Because it's our sins that led to his crucifixion. Right? The righteous one has to be our righteousness. And so we cling to that greater prophet that Moses spoke of arising. Third, listen to him. Right? Moses said there's a prophet. He's going to speak. We have to listen to Christ in the gospel. Or we too could be threatened with being cut off. Right? Do not be arrogant. Do not boast. If the natural branches were cut off, you can be cut off. We have, we have to hear, we have to listen to the voice of Jesus Christ in Holy Scripture. Finally, I think there's a lesson here in not resisting the Holy Spirit. Right? Seeking to be filled. Not letting our hearts become hard. So you, with Stephen, and with the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, of whom there are thousands at this point, they are the root of the church, you are the temple, made without hands, filled with the Holy Spirit. And in your heart, that spirit is writing the law of God. right The God of glory. A glory which has begun in you, as you look with unveiled face at Christ who is raised and exalted in the heaven temple. Amen.